Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi everybody! Hi, Dr. Nick. <laughs> yes, hello, everybody. It's Dr. Nick here on 3RRR Radiotherapy. Welcome to the show. Oh, and today I'm delighted to be joined here in the studio by regular panellist Prudence Dear and new member Dr. Sonia. First, welcome to you, Prudence. Um, Morning, Nick. Morning. Well, How are you today? Well, I'm very well. We've got a fantastic guest on today, haven't we, Professor Mel Hopwood? What's, what's he going to be helping well, us talk about? Well, I hope he's going to tell us a little bit about depression and uh, those sorts of disorders, and in particular, um, a long-standing hypothesis about the role of serotonin in, or, or diminished serotonin, in people with depression. Depression. So let's find out if that works or not. It's such a fascinating area, isn't it? I mean, mood disorder so complicated anyway, but the serotonin hypothesis, so-called, has been buzzing around for decades. And Absolutely. Um, and, I mean, how many people have taken medications that are specifically affecting serotonin in order to treat depression? I can't wait to hear about mm. that one. Okay, so, and we'll also now welcome Dr. Sonia. Welcome back to Radiotherapy. Uh, look, it's lovely to have you on. And uh, what are you going to be talking about, Dr. Sonia? Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about and learning from both of you about chronic pain in patients and how little it seems we know about it. But we'd love to know more. Okay, so t- tell us why chronic pain. What's your, what's your investment in that particular area? Yeah, I'm a GP registrar, which means that I'm training to be a, a fully qualified GP if everything goes well. And where the way that we treat chronic pain in the community is quite different to how we learnt how to treat it in med school and in the hospital. So I want to help my patients better and I want to learn how to do that and we'll take it one step at a time. Okay, and that again, a little bit like the serotonin hypothesis, I mean, chronic pain it's absolutely everywhere mm. it's really complicated mm. i'm not sure i was taught anything about it so i'm <laughs> looking forward to learning that's going to the be blind will lead the blind today oh, yes, that, that'll be <laughs> absolutely fantastic um, I, well i'm looking forward to that that'll be in the second half of the show before then we have one of my favorite segments Oh, yes, here at 3 Triple R, we love all animals, aardvarks to axolotls, but... You don't see those in the dog park. No, you don't. You don't see too many axolotls in the dog park. So, puppies, dogs, it is. Um, now, which of you two are familiar with the Japanese spits? Silence. Sounds like none of us. <laughs> <laughs> the Japanese spits is they're those fluffy white things, and the little puppies they look a little bit like a sort of baby polar bear of some kind. Oh my Ooh, god, they are so cute! Adorable. Uh, absolutely adorable. Well, Jared has a 14 week old Japanese spits called Roxy. So today's dog park shout out goes to Jared and Roxy and Jared is just discovering that having a new puppy is just a little more complicated than he remembered. Uh, Who would have thought uh, having a puppy is complicated? Uh, (laughs) Have you been in the dog park recently yourself, um, uh, Prudence? Uh, well, well, I've been around the lake, yes, um, as, and there are always many dogs. My little one just, um, she's a very reactive, reactive dog, though, so I took her to the kennels yesterday and somebody else just 
dog had barely arrived and she was like ferocious now she was you know pulling at the leash and barking and growling and she is like she weighs all of five kilograms and she's about the size of a sort of i don't know a tiny monster a tiny monster (laughs) with personality so well there you go there's a there's our dog park dog park shout out for today this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. It's news time. Um, actually, the news I'm going to shout a little bit of news out is about measles. Why are we talking about measles, Dr. Sonia? I'm looking forward to finding out, actually. <laughs> we have an outbreak at the moment or a few unexpected cases. Well, that's right. The reason I'm mentioning it is because it is extraordinary, really, that you have three cases of a disease and it's an outbreak and it's mm. in the news. Um, but the reason it's in the news is because of the R number of measles. Now, I'm looking at you again, Dr. Sonia. Yes, um, uh, this, I think this is something to do with the likelihood of transmission, the R number. We learned all about that in COVID. Yes, I'm trying to forget. Keep going. <laughs> but is it the, the number of contacts that will then increase transmission, the yeah. effectability? So we all became epidemiologists during COVID, yes. and everyone remembers that the R number is the chance of passing it on. So mm-hmm. once the R number is over one, then the disease is going to spread because one person is going to spread it's more than one other. And COVID had an R number of something like two, two and a half, something like that. But measles has an R number of something like 18, which Mm. is why it is such an important disease because once it gets out there, if we have almost any unvaccinated people, it's going to spread. Yeah, I was going to say, what's the sort of target vaccination number then to give her that hypothetical herd immunity type? Yeah, especially among school children, presumably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, because of that very high R, R number, you need herd immunity vaccination coverage of around about 95% in order mm. to stop it spreading. Um, so it's not the three three cases are terrifying, but it's the concept of a new disease which yeah. can spread so easily amongst unvaccinated people. And I'm old enough to have seen measles epidemics and have treated oh. kids with measles. Yes, absolutely. I, I have. I had it. We that, those were the standard childhood diseases. You know, a few I, decades ago, it was absolutely standard. Of course, yeah. there was nothing else you could do. You just had to get your measles. But it is potentially a nasty disease with complications. So a good one not to get. So mm. if you haven't got your kids vaccinated against measles and um, particularly if you're on that flight from I think it was from Singapore to Melbourne <clears throat> time to rush out and get them done you were going to just mention quickly Dr Sonia about monkeypox as well yeah that? that's right yeah for a while I tried to bury my head in the sand about a new epidemic after the fatigue from COVID but monkeypox uh, the main update is that we do have vaccines available in very limited supply in Australia now there have been about 69 cases in Victoria but none none of them are active cases and uh, vaccines are available through local public health units depending on where you live. So if you search online for your local public health unit, you can find out who the priority groups are for free vaccination. And at the moment, they tend to be men who have sex with men or men who are on PrEP. And so Thorn Harbour is a great place to look for information about the vaccine. So head over to thornharbour.org.au. All right, you heard it here on 3 R. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Sonia. In a moment, uh, we're going to be back and we'll be talking to Dr. Mal Hopwood. Professor Mel Hopwood about the serotonin hypothesis. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. 
To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Just having a little trouble with the phone line system thingies. Uh, just trying to get a little assistance with that. Um, while we're talking, while we're trying to get that sorted out, I'm just going to pass over to Dr. Sonia. Dr. Sonia, you're relatively new to the job. Um, tell us about your experience of trying to manage people with mood disorder. Sure, yeah. So we, in medical school, we would have learnt about the serotonin hypothesis, which is this idea that there's sort of an organic, uh, um, less serotonin in the brain, uh, a depletion that reduces your ability to uh, have a happy mood, enjoy your usual activities, have motivation. But what um, Prudence Deer and I were discussing before is that it seems as though a lot of this is sort of based on a theoretical model of serotonin release rather than actual studies. And so it's been really interesting to get some new uh, research out that seems to lend some weight to that theory. Absolutely. Yeah, look, and I think, um, yes, we've been... Over a few decades now, we we saw uh, the introduction of you know the magic happy drug Prozac in mm. the 1990s, around about there, um, which you know was a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So, you know that's been used extensively, and I guess the the clinical trials were quite short as mm, well, so like only sort of often at like sort of eight weeks or something. But yes, we're all predicated on this idea that brain chemistry gives rise to depression. And probably yeah. other mood disorders. Um, I mean, I find it interesting from my perspective as a psychotherapist that um, there are other ways as well. Like what happens, you know, I can, I can work with people with depression. Major depressive disorder, I think, is a partic- can often be a pretty intractable sort of condition. Mm. But, you know, people suffer depression in all sorts of ways. Mm. I think you know, there's a range of sort of depression, depressive type episodes, some of which, you know, might be relatively short. And... How much is how much is brain chemistry, and how much is the result of environment and of context? Course. You know, like at what point do we, if we if we suffer a bereavement and we're in a state of grief, we probably are exhibiting a lot of symptoms of depression. But it, and is that brain chemistry, or is that a set about the circumstances and yes, our outlook? And this is so similar to everything I'm learning about chronic pain. I think it's so tempting as scientists or medically mm. trained people to focus on a theory that makes sense, using a medication mm. to treat the depletion of a molecule. But really, it, it's there's so many things just like pain that modulate our experience of mood, um, our experience of life, mm-hmm. things like financial stress, anxieties, relationship difficulties. Um, that, it's tempting to focus just on a, yeah. on a molecule, <clears throat> but I think, as we're always trying to do in primary so, care, yeah. a holistic model right. sounds nice, but how do we <laughs> how do we achieve that practically when yeah. we see our patients? Uh-huh. Well, that's true, but I, I suppose there is yes, that. You know, we, we have a multidisciplinary mm. approach to many mood disorders. Mm. So, yes, it does involve the GP. It involves possibly psychiatry. It involves uh, psychotherapy, mm. um, which can give us an a, a all-round kind of approach to mm. helping people manage, especially if they are struggling a lot. <laughs> I'm delighted to say I was struggling to get <laughs> Professor Mal Hopwood on the phone, but I've now got him. Never I'm now going to introduce Professor Mal, who's Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Melbourne and Head of the Professorial Psychiatry Unit at Albert Road Clinic, a researcher in mood and anxiety disorders. Mal, welcome to Radiotherapy. 
Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to join you. Yeah, sorry about the slight technical, technological glittery there, but I'm going to pass you over to Prudence. Good morning, Professor. This is Prudence. Good How morning. Are you? Yeah, thank you for joining Very us well, this you. morning. Um, and uh, giving us a little bit of your time. Uh, I've been very interested recently in, yeah, in where we're at in terms of the role of serotonin in, in mood disorders and particularly depression. So I just wonder, I mean, I know this is kind of your field, so I was just wondering, first of all, if you could just give us a little bit of background just to, so we can understand, like, what is depression and what, what forms it takes and maybe what's, what's the prevalence in our sort of communities these days? Well, a very common condition. So best estimates say in any 12-month period, about 5% of Australians suffer mm-hmm. what we would say is depression. Um, and generally that means uh, a condition where every day for at least a couple of weeks or more, they've got symptoms like low mood, loss of enjoyment, and then some of that whole range of other things that can come with depression, poor sleep, poor appetite, poor concentration, feeling helpless and hopeless, and sadly on occasions feeling that life may not be valuable. Um, so a common condition and estimated by the World Health Authority to now be the leading cause of health-related disability globally. It's a very yeah. important condition. Absolutely. And I mean, that is a significant number if you're saying 5%, you know, on a regular kind of basis. So, um, and, and you described a set of sort of symptoms there. Um, and as actually Dr. Sonia and I were just talking, you know, I mean, there are kind of um, contextual things, you know, just environmental sort of situations that we might find ourselves in, which make us feel a bit down, you know, I'm not having a good day. Yeah. Um, is that different from perhaps somebody who, you know, will, might maybe suffers for, for weeks and weeks on end with an intense sense of foreboding or whatever it is? Yeah, I think it certainly can be, can't yeah. it? And we need to be very careful of not over-classifying every normal human reaction to, say, a loss, for example, yes. as, as ultimately being depression. That would be wrong and a misunderstanding of life, really, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Um, so can, yeah, can you tell us perhaps... Oh, sorry, go. No, no, I'd like you to continue if you've got something else, please. Well, I just, I, again, we'd be really looking for something that's persistent and impacts on all aspects of a person's functioning. So what we often see where there's a particular circumstance that's leading to sadness is that there might be moments in the day where you're just not thinking about that and mm-hmm. you can feel okay for a little while. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't affect every bit of your being. No, okay. Um, so, in terms of like perhaps the history, so how have we treated, especially f- psychopharmacologically, how has how has depression been treated? What do we what do we offer patients? Yeah, focus has been on what we've called the antidepressant medication, and they first came into clinical practice in the sort of fifties and sixties. And the first of them were really discovered by accident. The very first one was a drug designed to treat tuberculosis. And what they found is, yeah, I know, exactly. Most of those people who had TB, probably not surprisingly, some of them are depressed. And suddenly, if you gave them one of these compounds, their depression got better. They then worked out that those medicines worked by lifting 
what are called monoamines in the brain, mm -hmm. noradrenaline and serotonin, and that led to an interest in their role in depression. Right. That's fascinating. This is Dr. Sonia here. I never knew that the monoamine oxidase inhibitors that we use very infrequently now in depression were originally for TB. That's a great part of history to learn. Yeah, about. I know. It, it is, and it, it's kind of interesting how this sort of by chance finding led to a whole layer of interest. And I think over time, the fact that it started out with this is a treatment that seems to help got a bit blurred with <clears throat> and this is the whole explanation for what happens in depression because mm. they are two separate things aren't they that by raising monoamines like noradrenaline and serotonin or influencing them in various ways that's great if it helps depression that of course doesn't directly prove by and of itself that that's the ultimate cause in any given case, does it? Well, I think that's right, isn't it? And just that, um, yeah, that there's no no evidence of a, of that kind of causal relationship there. So, so what are so what are SSRIs? I mean, I think an awful lot of people probably know that they might be taking those now. Those seem to be the the, the drug of choice. So, what what is an SSRI? What does it do? Yeah. So the. SSRIs, or specific serotonin reuptake inhibitors, are the most widely prescribed group of antidepressants now in Australia. And it includes Prozac or fluoxetine, which kind of, you know, back in the, the 90s, unless you were in a cave, you would have heard of. Um, drugs like sertraline, peroxetine, escitalopram and citalopram and so on. And the way they fundamentally work in the brain... When a neuron or nerve cell releases serotonin to stimulate the next nerve cell, um, there's an active process where that's then taken back up into the nerve cell. They block that reuptake, so you get more serotonin floating around in the gap between neurons. And we know that serotonin pathways are active in the parts of the brain that seem to be functioning less well in people with depression. So stimulating it in that way does seem to help. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of an empirical sort of situation, isn't it? We give these drugs and people seem to generally get better. How effective uh, are drugs like, uh, like Prozac, for example? Well, not perfect, and uh, it's very important to acknowledge because um, when you start one of these things, of course, you want to be one of the people who responds, don't you? That's a oh, natural totally. thing. It, with any one antidepressant, um, the rate of getting into full remission really well is about 40%. So it often mm -hmm. means people need to try more than one to find what's the right one for them. And I think it's very important we're honest about that because mm -hmm. that can be a hard process for people. You want to get better sooner, right? Um, uh, we know the response rate to the second drug if you need one, is about 40% as well. Right. So if we keep going, for most people, we're going to find something that can help, of course, combined with other ways of treating depression as well. Absolutely, thanks. Yeah, so, but there are some drugs, aren't there, like um, ones that perhaps act on melatonin, for example. So how does that fit in the picture? Because that is not serotonin, is it? It's a different mechanism altogether, I believe. Oh, correct. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So um, we have realised that those drugs that work on serotonin and noradrenaline, those monoamines, 
help a lot of people, but not everyone. Mm. So the search has been on for other systems in the brain that if we influence them, may help other people. And one of the recent ones under investigation has been melatonin. Many of us know melatonin is something you take to try and help the sleep-wake cycle, right? That's right. Um, but by influencing that, you possibly also do influence systems, including uh, serotonin in parts of the brain. Mm -hmm. And so there are antidepressants available now that influence both melatonin and some right. serotonin receptors. Yeah. Fantastic. So there's all sorts of um, you know options there for for patients and their prescribers. Um, so so recently, as this year, there've been a couple of you know research papers published that um, kind of basically contradict themselves. One said, oh, there's no, there's nothing in this really you know causal relationship between serotonin and and depressive episodes. And then another one's come out more recently, saying that they've been able to measure um, uh, serotonin sort of release in humans, alive ones, because I believe that, you know, the history is that, you know, some of this was post-mortem sort of data, but this is like real live people being, having their brain scanned. Um, how, does, how, are we, how are we to interpret this when we see, in a very short space of time, two quite contradictory findings? Yeah, look, at, I think in all of these sort of polarised arguments, the truth is probably going to lie somewhere in the middle, isn't it? Mm. The... And I, I think part of the answer is, it is we, we're pretty certain, I think, that depression is not one thing. It's probably a range of conditions in the way it affects people and in the way it works in the brain. Um, and that probably explains why when we've looked at various measures of serotonin functioning in the brain in people with depression, the results are inconsistent. And mm. it, they've not consistently shown right that system is definitely abnormal um, in people with depression that's in contrast to the results with the serotonergic antidepressants that are more consistent in saying they are helpful for some people sometimes mm. and it, it may be that by influencing serotonin you're influencing the step three layers down as it were that's relevant for that person with depression it's just after 25 past 10 here on 3 Triple R, and uh, we're listening to Professor Mal Hopwood uh, discussing the serotonin hypothesis. Uh, absolutely fascinating, fascinating conversation. One of the problems I have, uh, Mal, is that um, we always talk about um, serotonin as if this is this kind of sort of soup of chemicals sloshing around in the brain. But I presume in terms of mood, it matters crucially exactly where the serotonin is, which nerve endings, what concentrations and that sort of thing. How on earth do you actually measure that sort of thing as opposed to a kind of crude measure of total serotonin? Yeah, well, we can't, and your point is a very good one, but challenges in all brain research include we really can't, as it were, reach into your brain and sample it in a very focal way. We're getting better with some scanning techniques at looking at specific receptors in the brain. And we can look indirectly at brain function by looking at levels of serotonin in what we call cerebrospinal fluid, the fluid that the brain sits in, um, and we can tap. But it's, it's a challenge. And one of the challenges at a treatment level then is that if we give a medication that influences serotonin function, 
or indeed noradrenaline or anything else. It's very difficult to target that to a particular area of the brain. It affects everything in the brain, doesn't it? And that explains yeah. to some of them both their positive benefits and potentially their side effect profile too. Absolutely, like we're bathing the brain, you know, in these chemicals. So um, I, I'd be interested as well, like, where, where do you think, you know, research should be focusing? I mean, obviously there is the pharmacology, as we've said, but, I mean, it seems that, you know, people are offering other sorts of things. Um, for example, you know, transcranial stimulation, you know, trying to ap- apply things to, to affect the brain maybe directly. And, I mean, we, and, and I suppose notwithstanding, you know, the more uh, aggressive, I think, treatments of like con- uh, electroconvulsive therapy and so on, which are kind of non-pharmacological, along with psychotherapy, which also seems to have a, a fairly high degree of effectiveness. Where, where do you think, you know, things are going and where should the focus... What, would, where, what, what, do, you, what do you think the focus should, for research should be? Well, I, I think the headline answer is A, all of the above. Um, because, you know, if we, we're thinking about the biggest cause of health-related disability mm. in the world, that calls for a massive research effort, doesn't it? And we know that no single one of those techniques is the answer for every individual, if only, you know, that'd be mm. great, wouldn't it? So we, we know we're going to need a range of answers. And I think what's very important is the field acts in a collaborative fashion. We've had a long-standing debate about the role of therapy versus medication. And yet, clinically, we often sort of use both and just kind mm-hmm. of get on with it, right? And recently, we've got very good meta-analytic work from Tim Kuyper's group in Holland that says, actually, surprise, surprise, combining the two, on average, produces a greater rate of getting completely well. Well, isn't that important to know? And So let's stop having sort of internecine wars between these different perspectives because I think that's very unhelpful and downright confusing for patients at times. I think that's such a great point, Mal, and um, obviously in primary care I deal with sometimes the less severe end of the spectrum than probably you do as a professor in a a university and a a hospital (laughs) environment. Um, What I always say to people is there are three ways of approaching your mood disorder. There's the personal and lifestyle, there's the psychological, and then there's the medical. Uh, We haven't even touched on uh, the roles of things like exercise and substance moderation and diet and so on. But I think what you're saying is that um, there's pretty good evidence now that a holistic approach is better than just chucking drugs at people or just doing one way. And uh, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, look, intuitively it does. Yeah, absolutely. And fully support the role of that triad lifestyle, um, the therapeutic and the sort of biologic approach. Absolutely. Time is upon us. Um, Professor Mal Hockwood, thank you so much for your time. Wonderful to have you on the telephone. Love to get you into the studio sometime in the future. Have a great weekend. Yeah, thank you, Nick, and a pleasure. That was Professor Mal Hockwood, um, who is Professor of Psychiatry from Melbourne University and the Albert Road Clinic. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Dr Sonia Srinivasan uh, in the studio. And Dr Sonia, uh, what have you got for us today? 
Yeah, today I'm talking about uh, pain, which is something Mm. that we know a lot about and at the same time seem to know very little about. Chronic pain is 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 the topic that I'm wanting to approach today and it's something that I see a lot in general practice and I'm trying to learn about some new models of pain. And I'm going to ask you straight away because chronic is a word that means something to us doctors. <laughs> Can yes. you explain what chronic means when we're talking about it in the medical context? Yes, thank you for stopping me right at the gate because that's really important. Chronic and, and patients have really varying understandings of what the word chronic means. So for us, chronic means long-standing, generally lasting longer than about eight weeks to six months, depending on the condition. And so chronic pain, by the definition, means something that's been lasting for a long period of time. I think that's a really important point, isn't it? Because chronic means so many things to different people. To us, it just means time going mm-hmm. on for a long time. Yeah, sorry, carry exactly on. Exactly right. Some patients think, uh, I've had a few patients say to me, my pain's not bad enough to be chronic. So a lot of patients think it's to do with severity, but it's time-based. And along the theme of time, not to call you out, Dr. Nick, but I, my sense <laughs> is that... Your, what you learnt about pain in medical school would probably be very similar to what I learnt about pain in medical school, which is a little bit more recent. Yes, well, I don't know what your experience was, but mine was I learnt essentially nothing. I mean, what would, <laughs> pain, pain was a symptom that needed to be controlled and the controls with drugs and just get on and give them medication. So that's everything I learnt about pain. I'll pay a few more respects to uh, University of Melbourne. I learnt a little bit more than nothing. <laughs> but what we learnt was this very much nerve-based theory of pain. So we have these receptors called nociceptors, and noci means bad, very bad receptors that uh, conduct these uh, conducting fibre impulses to the spinal cord where the pain is is transmitted, and then it goes up to the higher processing centres in the brain, and that's where we experience the pain. And the experience comes back to what the actual definition of pain is, which is what I was pondering on in a recent chronic pain workshop. Uh, So the definition of pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience that relates to actual or potential tissue damage. And this whole idea around damage to the tissues and whether it's actual or potential, I think, is really getting us closer to the crux of understanding chronic pain. Now, I'm very interested in that definition. Of course, listeners might think, why on earth do you have to define pain? We all know what pain is. But but your definition is a very physical one, isn't it? It's about tissue damage. And I'm looking across at Prudence, our psychotherapist, and thinking, <laughs> well, I'm guessing you've seen a few people with psychological pain whose oh. tissues are entirely intact. Totally. And I guess that was one of the things I was just sort of noting down myself, really, was that, and I think it's important to acknowledge, um, that for people who experience pain, I mean, regardless of the cause, they are in pain. That's the first and most important thing. And then it's like, I think there's a difference between possibly visible pain. So if you've got an injury, you know, if somebody's just, you know, if you walked into a door and you've you've got a bloody nose, people will kind of be possibly sympathetic towards you. If you've got pain that does not have any visible cause, I wonder how that kind of plays out in the complexity for, you know, in a social context of how people manage with pain. Well, how many times has a patient ever said to me, um, when I got whatever the disease was, and I remember Mm -hmm. a patient getting breast cancer, 
saying that was so much easier to deal with than my depression because mm. people understood the physical nature of that yeah. disease, whereas no one's understood the pain I experienced from my mood disorder. <laughs> mm. We've interrupted you right at the start. <laughs> no, because, But you were given this definition of pain mm. as a physical organic tissue damage thing. So did that then go on to encompass this more psychogenic pain? Yeah, well, I think the important part of the definition is it's, it's actual or potential tissue damage. And it was interesting at this chronic pain workshop it was multidisciplinary, which is what we love um, in the community. So we had doctors, psychologists, occupational therapists, physiotherapists. You had all these people in a room writing down their definition of pain and everyone's was quite different. So I think if we're going to be an evidence-based profession where we have a unified understanding of what we're treating, getting on board with the definition and then accepting its flaws and its limitations is a really important place to start. So... Going to the next, um, I guess when we talk about chronic and acute, a lot of what we learnt in medical school, Dr Nick, you and I, and as an intern in the hospital, was about treating acute pain. And acute pain is something that's happened recently and is often associated with damage to tissues. We treat it with Panadol, ibuprofen, opiate medications, although we're a little scared of those these days. But chronic pain is very different, and it's a lot more about hypersensitivity of the nerves, an ongoing, unpleasant, emotional, sensory experience. And the way that we approach that um, should be very different. Mm. I mean, that, that raises the question, doesn't it, Dr Sonia, that, yes, you know, there are, there are drugs, there's pharmacology, good old morphine and stuff like that. So if that, if that can cure my physical pain, well, why does it not work sometimes if I've got a chronic condition? I wonder what's going on there. Exactly right. And I think the way that, um, you know, when I've started in my training, I really had a focus on the pain with patients. So asking them about their pain, draw, draw where it's affecting you, rate it on a scale of one to 10. These are all the things we're taught to do. And it's amazing in the consult, you almost see the patient experiencing more and more of their pain as you force them mm. to talk about it in more and more detail. So realising that I wasn't, what I was doing was not very helpful. There's lots of frustration for the doctor and the patient as medications after a while really don't seem to work that well. One of yeah. the things that I was taught was, if I remember correctly, um, Wall's gate theory of pain. Yes, I see yes. you smiling, Dr Sonia, so obviously this has been mentioned to you and that this was the theory that um, if you could interrupt the pathways, um, and this is where uh, cutaneous nerve stimulation came in, so TENS machines abounded back in the, in the 70s and 80s as the solution to all forms of pain. We still hear about them from time to time, but they don't seem to have kept much traction. Um, mm. Do you know anything about that and why that's kind of slightly moved sideways? Yeah, I think because it's really fo focusing on the peripheral, that first nociceptor peripheral nerve experience of pain. And as we were talking about before, an, a holistic model of mental well-being and depression mm. – um, the brain is constantly evaluating all the evidence it has available to it to determine whether this feeling or this pain is a threat or not. And this is where we learned about something known as the protectometer. Have either of you heard about this? No, but I'm dying to. <laughs> a protectometer. Sounds, something, sounds like something I might need to wear when playing cricket. Yes, <laughs> yes. Excuse the highly jargonistic terminology, and that brings me to whether I could bring patients along with me with this word. But the idea of the protectometer is that when we experience pain, our body 
the pain experience is our body trying to protect itself from further damage. So, for example, you know, if we sprain our ankle, we very quickly from a, a spinal cord perspective will avoid weight bearing on that ankle. And if there and the body will make these uh, concessions so we avoid further damage. Over time, though, the more that our body is trying to protect us by moving less, staying in bed, um, holding our arm in a particular way, those uh, mechanisms become maladaptive in the sense that we experience more and more pain to try and protect more and more. And the analogy is that it's like a fire alarm constantly Mm -hmm. going off even though there's no actual fire. So this is the idea of the protectometer. I think in a room filled with Allied health practitioners and scientists, maybe the word works, but how do you think Prudence and Dr. Nick patients would go uh, with that Well, phrase? I'm not sure that that phrase is a great approach. <laughs> it's too technical. But, I mean, it was making me think, you know, that, that from my perspective, some of the things that we, um, uh, that we use, um, and one of them for helping manage chronic pain is mindfulness-based stress reduction. Absolutely. And, you know, that has been scientifically demonstrated. So this is mindfulness sort of um, practices um, done often in groups and so on over a period, you know, it's a program. But um, people with chronic pain who may have sustained that through injuries or other illnesses, um, for example, they, they reduce their, their analgesic, their pain-killing intake over time, and it actually helps them what, live better with the pain? So there's a difference between like getting rid of the pain or just learning how you can accept it without a lot of intervention. It's just after quarter to 11 here on 3RRR. You're in the studio with me, Dr Nick. We've got Dr Sonia and Prudence Deer, and we're talking about chronic pain and uh, everything to do with pain. And Prudence, I want to ask you a question. Um, I've, I've often been interested when just sitting idly, and I remember one time sitting in a, um, a theatre seat waiting for a play to begin, and I suddenly got this sharp pain in my lower back, which was really quite stingy and sharp. And I remember th- but I remember thinking, OK, this is just a pain that doesn't mean anything. But then mm-hmm. I tried to imagine, suppose I imagined that someone in the seat behind me was trying to stick a knit- knitting needle into my spine... This pain would be excruciating and unbearable. And how can it be at the same time something which means nothing and which I'm ignoring? And I often think about this with things like um, people who do have chronic disease or malignancy, for instance. Mm -hmm. If you've got a headache when you know it's just, I've got a bit of a headache, you can take some Panadol and not worry about it too much. But if you've got a headache and you know you've got something potentially nasty, it can be unbearable. How can the same pain vary from something you sit waiting for a show to begin ignoring and also be something unbearable. Great question, isn't it? <laughs> it's like that whole thing of focus, I think, that if we actually focus on it, it kind of intensifies. It's, whether it's a pain, whether it's an itch, you know, if you've got a plaster cast on and you've got a little itch down the plaster cast, you'll be sort of like driving yourself absolutely nuts after a while. Whereas if you can distract yourself and whether it's, you know, reading a book, watching something funny or whatever that just takes you out of that kind of focus on what's going on inside your body, um, it seems you can diminish perhaps the, the, the level of experience that you have of that particular 
nauseous or noxious. So does that take us, Dr Sonia, to what you were talking about in this workshop about how we should be managing chronic pain? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, again, so much about the brain analysing the threat. So, you know, we have extreme soreness in our legs when we suddenly decide we want to take up cycling when we've never done it before or we want to try and lift some weights in the gym. And we know that delayed onset muscle soreness is a pain that we're proud of and shows that we've been working hard. But I think this is the next step of how to treat chronic pain, I think, is the crux and the challenge, which is um, the, the goal of a biopsychosocial model is to ultimately not get rid of pain completely, as you said, Prudence, but is to restore function, to allow our patients to do the things they want to do in life and to improve their coping, their control and their acceptance of the role that pain might play in their lives. And the the evidence, which is mostly based in Western cultures, shows that understanding this model of pain, understanding the way the brain evaluates threats and safeties, helps patients to manage their pain. So I hear a lot about the biopsychosocial model, and we hear this played lip service to a lot, even in mental health, where um, people say we should be doing all sorts of uh, community and psychosocial rehabilitation. It almost never seems to happen. Mm. Um, I'm in my experience of managing chronic pain, it's pretty hard for people to get much help in the biopsycho side of things. So what should we be doing? And where do people get that kind of help if that's what they need? I think one thing we could stop doing is saying biopsychosocial model. <laughs> I think it's something something that um, something that we definitely understand from an academic perspective. But it's sort of like telling patients um, who have chronic conditions, diet and lifestyle, full stop. See you next week. Mm. I think we need to take patients on that journey. Something that I find helpful that works even with a patient in front of me is asking them about their good days. What does your what do your best days look like? Describe to me what you do on your good days. And you can see a lightness sort of start to um, come through when they describe the things they do on their best days and we can figure out together how to have more mm-hmm. days like that. And that sounds though that touches on what you were saying, Prudence, about how we should be managing it. Yeah, look, I, I think you know if you think about the impacts of pain and and how often how we might manage it, which is like rest, you know, immobilise, and that causes social isolation as well. People get stuck at home or in bed or whatever. Um, we've got to somehow find ways for them to socially connect as well. So it might be that we you know we've got to provide services that do mobilise and support mobility, getting them out, you know, yes, the the sorts of things of, of just getting involved in other community activities, whether it's arts and crafts, but it could be community gardening, things that maybe somebody would be thinking, I can't possibly do that. But with gentle introductions, they actually enjoy it and they get social connection, which is probably one of the biggest things that will certainly help deal with the anxiety and the depression that they're experiencing. And again, just not trying to tell people again I think there's this idea of this rest and recuperation may not actually be the best thing to do and on that note also telling people what to do from our perspective doesn't seem to work (laughs) as well as people identifying themselves what works and I just wanted to briefly touch on the fact that um, we don't have a lot of resources to treat chronic pain in refugee and migrant populations and I have Mm. um, quite a few refugee patients in my clinic and their cultural experience of pain and what it means is vastly different 
different to most of the research that's come out of Western models. There was a, um, a, a systematic review done at Monash earlier this year showing that we're extremely limited now. The interdisciplinary approaches that we have available to chronic pain in different patients. And when we think of the threats and the trauma that refugees have been through, that absolutely compounds onto their experience of pain. So something I'd love to see in future would be some qualitative studies with patients from different cultures about their experience of pain and what works. So that begs the question about what do we actually do? So if someone with chronic pain is listening to this and feels, well, I've been given a few medications, but no one has ever mentioned this biopsycho or whatever model to me, um, how do people find help and what are the kind of resources that we do have? There are some amazing online resources. There's one called tamethebeast.org, and that comes from a, a, a holistic pain neuroscience approach that really tries to help patients come along the journey to understand their pain. There's also um, an, a website called Pain Revolution that I think helps to connect people who experience chronic pain and really share their story. And sharing your story can be a really important part of healing. Um, seeing your GP is something that's also really important. Um, but part of the, the self-management through understanding pain, there's lots of great resources online. Those are two of them that I've mentioned. And you've also mentioned um, very briefly, you said opiates, but we're a bit concerned about those these days. Um, I think that's a really important question that we need to touch on because inevitably when people go to doctors, it tends to be the medication solution that is the one that's looked for. Um, what's the concern about opiates? I mean, these drugs work. Why shouldn't we use them for pain? I think one of the biggest problems, Dr. Nick, is that they don't work very well outside of a really specific set of circumstances. Acute pain after surgery or ongoing pain specifically related to cancer are situations where they work well. But the vast majority of situations where they've been used around the world, and especially in the US for chronic pain, they don't work well. Your body will naturally need more and more and more. And when the medications you can get prescribed to you don't work, then patients who are understandably desperate to feel better We'll, we'll find other, other types of opiates that can sadly lead to dangerous things like overdose. Yeah, I think it's a really important point. And uh, for people listening out there who may be using opiates longer term, it's not, not that we're suddenly saying, oh, just ditch those and see how you manage. No. Um, but the reliance on medication as the primary way of dealing with this sort of um, long-term chronic problem is yeah. probably, not, probably not the best. Uh, do you get people referred specifically to you, Prudence, for pain? Uh, to be honest, no. I mean, it's, it is, you, it's quite common as a sort of comorbidity, if you like. I mean, I was just thinking, you know, endometriosis, fibromyalgia are common presentations that I see in a more complex sort of, you know, situation for somebody. So pain is part of the story. It, for me, it's often not the primary thing, but we always, you know, we have to take it into account because it determines how easy it is for somebody to sit through a psychotherapy session how easy it is for them to arrive at one and also again about focus how easy or not it is you know how difficult it is for them perhaps to focus on their other needs because of their pain so I think it is it's it's it's, it's a multifactorial thing and it plays out in different ways for me, it's the crucial thing is that we need to listen to people and, and understand, you know, what their experience is rather than, yes, just thinking, oh, well, you know, yeah, you, you've got some pain, here's an analgesic, you know, that should help. 
So we've only got a minute or so left. Dr. Sonia, just to wrap up, um, any last thoughts? And if you can just um, repeat what those avenues are for online resources for people. Yeah, I guess my last thought would be that I think we can and should do better as doctors and health professionals in treating chronic pain. A great place to start is um, looking online to understand pain uh, from a a basic point of view. And tamethebeast.org is something that I've been giving to patients. There's some great YouTube videos on understanding pain if you search that. And then starting with your, your GP as well is a great place place to go. I love a message that ends start with your GP, <laughs> Dr. Sonia <laughs> Conflict of interest there. <laughs> <laughs> no conflict at all. Thank you so much. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Our wonderful, intelligent Triple R listeners, and uh, there's a fabulous text that's come through, sadly anonymous, um, but uh, it's talking about chronic pain, saying ditch the 1 to 10, it just reinforces inward withdrawal. I go for colour, red, blue, better with kids as well. Name the pain, start externalising it. What do you think about that, Dr. Sonia? Oh, that's fascinating. I definitely agree that the 1 to 10 just isn't that helpful. And I did read somewhere that, I don't know if this is overly cynical, but I read that the 1 to 10 was kind of as well influenced by some analgesic pharmaceutical companies. But the colour... Oh, I would have thought it. That company has influence. <laughs> the colour is fa- uh, fantastic. I've never heard of that, and I love it particularly for kids. So... Um, I mean, and if that's some, if our our listener is talking from a personal pain experience, then absolutely, I'd love to take that on board. I'll I'll try it and see how it goes. Oh, I love that idea. So, Sounds Prudence, you'll, you'll be naming the pains and giving them all yeah, colours from them now a on. Colour or something, because yeah. numbers are again those sort of ratings, and you yeah. think, oh, I've got to, oh, my pain's bad. I've got to give it a big number. So, well, yeah. our pain is now finished because it's a nearly eleven. God, I've been Doctor Nick. Thank you. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.